And uh, do turn with me in your Bibles to Hosea and the very last chapter, Hosea chapter 14. Hosea chapter 14. We are um, finishing off our studies in Hosea. And um, the Lord willing, next time we are in the minor prophets, we will be in Joel. So if you're not too familiar with Joel, please, you have a week or two, or just a week actually, to catch up with uh, what it's all about, and then that will enrich our time together. Our studies have been entitled um, The Major Lessons in the Minor Prophets. And it's a series that I have longed to start, and I'm glad I have the opportunity to do so now. And it's, it's one that I hope we all benefit from, because it's uh, going through 12 um, books of the Bible at once, giving us something of the idea that lies behind these uh, 12 or so books. And uh, today, as I said, we are in chapter 14, and we are wrapping up. Again, as I did last week, this time even more so because we are wrapping up on the entire book, let me quickly give you uh, a bird's eye view of the entire book, and then we will zero in on chapter 14. So we noted as we began the book of Hosea that chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3 were a form of acted out parable. But the acting out was serious. This was not on a stage. It was in the real life of the prophet Hosea himself. He was asked to marry a prostitute, and then out of that have children who were obviously compromised. Were they his? Did they belong to other men? And in due season, the situation got so bad that, in fact, uh, Hosea told the children, I'm sending your mother away, and she was gone. At some point, he had pleaded with the children to speak to their mother, but they, that was not to be. So as she went away, she obviously suffered. Her lovers were nowhere to be found. She became a pitiful sight, and God then told Hosea to go and get her back. And it was really that which is in the shortest chapter of the whole book, and that is chapter 3, that is, uh, um, for all intents and purposes, a blow between the eyes. Uh, you, you must really love your, your spouse, your wife, to, to be able then to, to go and claim her back from a life of prostitution. And as... Difficult as that might be to comprehend, God is saying, that's exactly the situation that I find myself in, that you, the people of Israel, have continued in sin. And so chapter 4 opens up with God's controversy against the people of uh, Israel. And then chapter 5 and chapter 6, we have God now uh, disciplining. The, the people of Israel. So his controversies, here you are, you've sinned, 
and now I am going to discipline you. As we get into chapter, uh, the rest of chapter 6 and the whole of chapter 7, uh, the basic issue there now is a description of the stubbornness and the, the grievousness of the sins of Israel. The point being, this is why I am disciplining you. So he describes something of how terrible this is. Chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, we, we have there uh, how God disciplines his idolatrous people. So it is now the punishment that is going to come upon them. Uh, over and over in different ways, God arguing that you are thus going to be disciplined. And then, when we came to chapter 11, we saw God still declaring his love for his people. When Israel was a child, I loved him, he says. And we also noticed the same. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? So God's real love for his people. If we can again use the picture of um, uh, a man with a, a wife who's a prostitute, uh, his heart still goes out to her. Wherever it is she is, I'm going to seek her out and bring her back. So that was chapter 11. And then last week, we looked at chapter 12 and chapter 13, and it was really God going back again to saying, I'm going to discipline you. Uh, and the main thing there is that it is a, a way of getting you back. It's not to finish you off. It is to get you back. Um, um, as it were, tightening all the screws around you so that you can feel the pain and realize that the right place you ought to be is with me uh, as your Lord and your Savior. So that's really where we ended last time. And you can see the journey that is there in the life of Hosea. The people of Israel at this point are not um, in captivity yet. They are still in the promised land, but they, they are now really at, at the, the tip of disaster. Disaster is about to fall. It's like if I could use the example of somebody who's been driving a vehicle and it's now reached E, and then it's gone beyond E. Okay, I know that's not too strange for Zambians. You know, it's, uh, and the person is still hoping that somehow we, it, it won't, the car won't st stop. Uh, there, is, there must be a little bit more fuel here, and so forth. Uh, that's really the state in which Israel was. They, they were at the end of the tank of grace. And any moment, God was going to act in judgment. As I have said before, I really want to repeat, uh, this is not simply because Israel sinned. It's because Israel stubbornly sinned. It was ongoing sin. And the nature of that sin especially was not in the second half of the tablet. Part of it was there. Okay, So when I say second half, the Ten Commandments, uh, the Sixth Commandment, 
downwards. You know, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not uh, bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet. It's not primarily there. It was primarily in the first tablet, the one that has to do with our vertical relationship, where we're supposed to love the Lord our God with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. Instead, their love was for other things, and he was somewhere in the midst of that. They did not completely forsake him. Rather, they kept him among their idols. And consequently, I have said as we've begun every week, that we may not be bowing down to curved images from wood or stone or marble. We may not be bowing down to trees and mountains and hills. But we can easily, as 21st century Christians, be equally guilty of idolatry. And I've defined idolatry in two ways, in terms of devotion and in terms of security. Devotion being that which has taken first place in your life. God is there somewhere, but he is not first. Uh, I often use the example of football, that, you know, World Cup has come, and then you say to yourself, there's no way I'm going to miss the World Cup and then that becomes the, the determining factor of everything else. So if church or Bible study or evangelism or ministry activities clash with a World Cup match, you, everybody knows, even you, you know, that it's those other things that will go rather than the World Cup match. But it's not just recreation. It could be your career, it could be your family, it could be anything else, uh, money, property, and so forth, that you become so devoted to that God's work and God's worship comes to a secondary place. And then we also talked about security. And instead of you finding your security in God, you are finding it in everything else, especially economic security. We, we, we tend to jeopardize ourselves as individuals and our families and so on, simply because this is where money is going to be so that I can have a secure future and in the process we throw away church altogether or at least make it number two or number three or number four. And sometimes it can be to such a ridiculous uh, state. I remember many years ago, speaking to a brother who was really missing from church so often because he was, he was either going for uh, evening classes or extra tutorials with uh, other friends and so on. And he had a good job. And I would ask him, so why are you missing from church? He said, no, I, I, I'm, I'm doing extra studies. He said, is, is it because you... You want to move away from this job? He says, no. You know, in Zambia, just never know. You can lose your job anytime, anytime. So I'm saying, yeah, but all of us can lose our jobs anytime, you know. Uh, no, no, you need, to be, you need to be secure. You need to be secure, and so forth. Well, you know, his, his life ended up being a complete disaster uh, over many years because actually God feeds you. God strengthens you 
when you are in the midst of worship. That was now under any other business. The security is what blackmailed him. And as we shall be reading even in chapter 14, uh, he was going to Assyria for help. And Assyria failed him. So all I'm saying, friends, is that we shouldn't sit on a high tower here throwing stones at Israel. Because you can be sure that that's exactly where we often find ourselves. We find ourselves in situations where we've got other things that we are devoted to other than God, and we've got other things that are our security, and consequently we are idolatrous even in the 21st century. Well, we are ending this book with an appeal from God, and hence the title of my sermon, God Wants His People Restored to Him. I had difficulties reducing that title because on one hand, I wanted to say God wants his people restored and I realized, restored to what? Because it's possible to think pure in terms of restored to the promised land. And that's not the point. God wants them restored to himself. And again, if we simply entitle it the need for God's people to be restored, the problem is, it's God wanting. It's, it's the heart of love that is saying, I want you back. So really, at the end of the day, I could not shorten it any further than this. God wants his people restored to him. The first part of this uh, uh, chapter, that is verse 1, down to verse 3, speaks about God's people returning in repentance. They are being asked or appealed to to return in repentance. Let me read those three verses to you. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will, repay, we will pay with bulls and vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In you the orphan finds mercy. Basically, here... This appeal is not return to the promised land because they are not yet taken into captivity. They are still in the promised land. But the appeal to return is an appeal to abandon idolatry and to come back to God. In other words, to make God once again the number one object of devotion. Let me say it again. To make God once again the number one object of devotion. And then, number two, it is to rest in him entirely for our sense of security or their sense of security. He wanted them to come back to him, to trust in him, 
to love him. This was already predicted in chapter 3 and verse 5. You remember that the smallest of all chapters. Let's go back there. Hosea chapter 3 and verse 5. And um, this is after talking about Hosea bringing back his wife. This is now the ultimate equivalent. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness, but notice, in the latter days. In other words, chastisement will come before they return. But they will ultimately return. What we have in our text is a plea saying, come before chastisement falls on you. Come before you are taken into the place of punishment. But of course, they would not listen. Hence that phrase in verse 2, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. The word stumbled there has to do with falling in disgrace. Falling in disgrace. It's like a person who's on, on the dance floor and really sort of showing off his dancing abilities and then somewhere there he misses his step and comes crashing down. And what everybody remembers after that was not the ability to dance. What everybody remembers after that was that fall, that embarrassing, disgraceful fall. Well, that's what God is saying here. He is saying, return. It is because of your sins that you are suffering already. And it's because of your sins that you will suffer even more. My interest here in these three verses is especially this appeal, take with you words. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Two verses quickly. The first is chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1, and then chapter 12, verse 6. Here they are returning with words. Chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. There it is, that we may come back to him. Verse 3. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. He's going out to show us the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. This last picture we are going to see also in Hosea and chapter 14. This refreshing of the vegetation. Chapters 12. Chapter 12 and verse 6. So you... 
by the help of your God, return, hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. In other words, rest in him. Come back into a healthy relationship with him. So there was already something of this appeal, but in this particular case, it's being underlined, take with you words. What words are there? Well, he, they are there in verse 2 and verse 3. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with you bulls and vows of our lips. Basically, it is we have sinned, we are now repenting of that, and we are recommitting ourselves to it. So that's the first. Admission of sin, asking for forgiveness, take away all iniquity, and then we will bring that which is good. Verse 3 speaks about, again, further repentance. And number one there is that we will stop relying on other things for our security. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And then there is the statement that we will stop devoting ourselves to that which is not God, that which is not you. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. Now that's crucial, friends. It's crucial in the sense that, you know, part of repentance is, is saying that this is what I have done and it is wrong. That's part of repentance. If a person is not willing to confess their sin, they are not yet repentant. They are not. They must be willing to come with words. To come with words. Another example, um, sorry for getting back to uh, the World Cup, but you know it, it has passed, so it's a very good one to, to fall back on. And it's if you know that that's your idol, you don't just sort of say, Lord, sorry that I'm, I'm idolatrous, Lord, sorry, you know, that I'm idolatrous. No, say, Lord, sorry that football is my idol. You say it. You acknowledge that this thing is my sin. It's what has taken your place in my life. It's, it's like a, a wayward person. You know, who, who's got an affair. You're not just saying, you know, uh, Lord, or maybe you're confessing to your wife or husband, you know, sorry that uh, I'm not as committed to you as I ought to be. <laughs> you know, your spouse will also say, well, actually, I also have the same problem, so sorry. But, but what exactly is it? So you, you, again, have to acknowledge that sorry that I have been having an affair with so-and-so and I forsake that relationship for you. So you, you are confessing, you are coming with words. But if every time you're saying sorry, later on your spouse is digging up more things, and then, but what about this? Yeah, but you know, later I was saying I'm a sinner, that's what I meant. Come on, come with words. Say it. 
and then say, I am sorry. So here they were saying, Assyria shall not save us. Here they were saying, we'll stop saying our God to the work of our hands. We'll stop it. This is our idolatry. This is the form that it took. And therefore, we are quitting it. Take with you words. That's the most difficult. Calling a sin a sin. Even a child who's taken over to drunkenness and you're trying to, to, to get them to sort out that drunkenness that it has now become an addiction. It's become an idol in their life. Have you noticed the way in which they say, well, you know, went with friends, yeah, so sorry I've come late. And say, yeah, but you are smelling alcohol. Yeah, you know, I took one or two. One or two. That's not repentance. That's not confession. It's not one or two. You, you have become a drunkard. And you need to repent of it. Otherwise, this will destroy you. So again, take with you words and return to the Lord. Thankfully, there is a God of mercy. And that's that last phrase there. In you, the orphan finds mercy. The point there is that you are a merciful God. Therefore, I'm coming to you as well. Those who've got their backs against the wall, their parents are dead, and they've got nowhere else to go, and finally they come to you, they find a merciful God. Therefore, we too are coming there. So that final acknowledgement is one that now God himself responds to in verse 4 down to verse 8, which is the largest section of this final chapter. And basically there, God is saying to them that he will graciously restore his people. Okay, he wants them to return, and if they come to him, he will restore them. And you can't miss it with the phrase, I will, I will, I will, in verse 4 and verse 5. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel, and so on and so forth. So God is one who is more than ready to receive us when we come back to him. He's already saying, return, return, come back from your state of backsliding. But when you come back, he wants to restore you, to, to, to love you freely, as he says. It is not based on your um, achievements or impressing me, but I am love itself. And therefore, I want you back. What matters is not so much where we are coming from, but where we are going. 
if you can make me the primary and only object of your devotion and your trust, your sense of security, we can forget the past. We can move on. That's what he is saying here. And the picture of uh, um, restoration, the Lord deliberately goes into the realm of agriculture. He goes into the realm of vegetation in order to capture something of this. And as I was uh, meditating on it, I was saying this is the right season to talk about it because as we go through verse 5 down to verse 8, you can't miss what we are seeing all around us. The, the, the rains are coming down and everything that was dry and brown has now become green. This, this is the best time to take pictures in your natural environment because everything around us is green. The rains bring a new lease of life. And that's the picture that God uses here, halfway through verse 5. Uh, he refers to himself that he will be like the dew to Israel, like the rains to Israel. That's the way it will be. Not the rains that destroy in the thunderstorm, but the rains that refresh. So what will happen to Israel? Here it is. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. And his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. So for a moment, he goes into the real spiritual reality or situation, but quickly again goes back to agriculture and vegetation. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. So the restoration, who's benefiting? Who is benefiting from coming back to a situation where God is my ultimate devotion? That my entire life is around the Lord, his will, his glory, and everything else. Who is the beneficiary? the backslider himself who has come back. He's the beneficiary. In our text, it is the backslider who will blossom. It is the backslider whose shoots now will spread out, whose beauty will become like the olive, whose fragrance will become like Lebanon. It is the backslider who will now flourish like grain, blossom like the vine, whose fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. It's the backslider. And therefore, it only makes sense that one comes back to that relationship. Now let's face it. Let's come back to the real situation. Initially, backsliders find it difficult to, to come back into the real life of God's people. They find it difficult because 
it's like a betrayer, someone who betrayed your trust. And therefore, it's, it's, it's you know, you are not happy out there, neither are you happy in here. But where there is genuine repentance in due season, that past is completely gone and the Lord completely renews a person's walk with himself, even among the very people of God, so that the ultimate testimony is one that completely overshadows what is there in the past. There are situations, for instance, where a marriage completely breaks down, and this is the example that is using here. A marriage completely breaks down because perhaps one party was completely unfaithful. And obviously, that's what everybody's talking about. Hey, that marriage, you know, they are now divorced, and so on and so forth. And so on. Then a the time comes when they get restored. They get restored. And at that point, everybody's still thinking, hey, have you heard? Those who divorced got restored. So the word divorced is still appearing in the vocabulary. Those who got divorced. The stumbling is still there. Ten years later, twenty years later, Nobody's talking about there was the divorce anymore because they are now bearing the fruit of a genuinely married life. They learned from that mistake. The marriage has been restored and look at the fruit of their lives. And even those who may refer to the divorce, often it's because they want to send those who are either about to divorce or they've just divorced, they want to send them to that couple so that they can be helped because they know that those individuals have done the complete turn around. Their same shall be like the wine of Lebanon. Now, I don't drink wine, so I have no idea about the fame of the wine of Lebanon. But I'm almost certain that at this time, if anybody mentioned that this bottle contains wine from Lebanon, people's eyes would begin going in circles because they would say, wow, where did you get it from, and so on, because it had a reputation of its own. That's what God does with lives when he brings them back. So here's the point again. Who is the beneficiary? the very person who's being taught, come back. Come back from your state of being backslidden. And it ends with, um, again, that statement of vegetation at the end of verse 8. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. In other words, the idols will not produce the fruit that is worth talking about in your life. They won't. They won't. I am the one who produces the fruit that is worth talking about. So come to me. Come to me. Now, from Looking into this congregation, most of you are generally younger believers. But trust me, 
I've been a Christian now for slightly over 40 years. And there was a time when a number of our friends apostatized, abandoned the faith because of money, because of prestige, because of marriage, looking for uh, girls or guys who have got either looks or money and so on. There was a time, and, and, and off they went. Those that never came back today are either dead or a sorry sight. I mean it. Dead or a sorry sight. And most of them died due to lifestyle decisions. Most of them. In other words, the things they chased after did not give them what they were looking for. They didn't. The God they left behind is actually the one who would have given them that stability in life that would have enabled them to go forward with a steady pace in order to actually get what their hearts were looking for. I am like an ever green cypress. In other words, it doesn't matter whether it is now the dry season of your life. I am still green. I'm an ever green cypress. It doesn't matter what season of your life it will be. I am the one who will produce the fruit that you need. Follow me and listen. I think that's an appeal that we all need to listen to because the world is always inviting us in the name of pleasure and satisfaction and fulfillment that we might give the world our hearts. It's always doing so. And as I said, when you are younger, you really believe it, that perhaps the world has something to offer after all. It is nothing but a mirage pool. That's all it is. A mirage pool. You head out there running, and one day, hopefully, you'll come back having learned the lesson. But if not, well, disaster falls, and it is too late. Only God can satisfy. Not God and something. Uh, 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 uh. Don't let anybody cheat you. Only God can really satisfy. Make him your all in all. Backsliders get cheated, and in the end, they pay for it dearly. Let's not do so. Let's not do that. The book of Hosea ends with what we would call a, a postscript which is verse 9. The postscript is it's debatable whether it's, it's really inside the chapter or it was something that he just added to close the book. But the postscript is like Jesus's, you know, when you read the book of Revelation and it says, let him who has ears, no, he who has ears to hear, 
let him hear. You remember that little phrase? It's, it appears about seven times in those two chapters. At the end of every one of those letters to Ephesus, Sardis, Laodicea, and so on, Philadelphia, towards the end, there's always, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. That, that's what this last part is. It's, it's as though Hosea said, look, I've, I've spoken, I've spoken, I've spoken, I'm tired of speaking. Now I'm simply saying, this now depends on you as an individual. And this is the way he puts it. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and it is the upright, okay, I've added that phrase, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. The point he's making is one that all of us need to hit. There are roughly 100 to 120 people in here, maybe 130 at the most. Bottom line is this. That you are all hearing the same message as opposed to another 20 or 30 through the uh, live stream. You're all hearing these words. But you can be sure that there are those who are listening who at the same time are still saying no. No. I have found this thing. It's, it's, it's my heart chases after. This, this will be my full satisfaction. And, 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 and they are still hell bent to go that way. And church is always like that. And that's the reason why when you come to members' meetings, you still have disciplinary cases. Despite the same ones that you're preaching. It's, it's interesting how young preachers, when you're meeting with them, they are distraught by young preachers, I mean young pastors. They're distraught when they, they have a disciplinary case on their hands and they say, but I, I, I taught these things. I taught. And you just say, welcome to the club. <laughs> because in the congregation, there are those who are not wise. There are those who are not discerning. They, 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 they don't, they don't have the capacity to see that this which is being taught me, it is for my good. Therefore, let me take a, a cricket button, as it were, uh, whatever, rounders button, and go and crush those idols of mine. And do away with them all together. No. They are not wise. They are not discerning. And sadly, the ways of the Lord are for the upright in heart. For those who have resolved, I am going to walk with God. I am going to walk with God. Those whose hearts are after sin, notice, they still stumble. And remember the definition of stumbling. It is the final disgrace that happens, sadly it will still be the case. So, as we wrap up Hosea, we are really asking the question, what are you going to do with this? 
In this postscript, we are really being told, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are you in that category of individuals who will say, I have benefited from Hosea. I've been caught on the wrong foot. I had begun to entertain lovers in my life other than God. This message of Hosea has caught me dead in my tracks. I need to sort out my life. I need to, as it were, tear out that iron, cut off that arm so that I can, the whole of me, belong to the Lord and to him alone. Thank you, God, for this minor prophet. I have learned a major lesson from him. Thank you. Is that you? Is that you? We might speak to somebody who is saying, nah, nah. After all, nobody knows what's going on in my life. Nobody knows. And I'm enjoying my sin. Therefore, I'm going to continue. Going to continue. If you choose the latter, transgressors stumble in the ways of the Lord. Sadly, sadly, those numbers, the, the Judases of this world did not end with Judas. They will continue. What a sobering ending to this story. Very well then, I want to summarize it in two statements. First of all, God loves us even when we are stubborn in our sin. God loves us freely. The heart of God is one that appeals with pathos. Return, return. Why should you die? That's the heart of God. And even now, that's what God is saying to us as his people. He loves us. And even when he punishes, it is chastisement in order to bring us back. That is the God of the Bible. That's my first concluding remark. The second is this. Repentance and confession of sin is vital to restoration. Repentance, in other words, forsaking sin and then confessing it come with words, calling it by its name. Those are vital to restoration and that we need to do if at all we are guilty. It is not that you are simply straying into pornography. It is that it has become an addiction. And therefore you go to God and you say, God, this is what I have been entertaining, pornography, and therefore today I quit it, I forsake it, I'm closing off all those apps or whatever else it might be, I'm dealing with it. It has become an idol in my life. 
So you call it by name. Not, you know, I sort of wander into, you know, wrong places. What wrong places? Call it by its name. Repentance and confession is vital to restoration. When you do so, God will save you. And over months and years, your spiritual life will flourish. He will be, as we are told in this text, like the due to Israel. There is forgiveness for us in Christ. He has shed his blood. And therefore, why continue when there's free forgiveness? Why continue in a backslidden state? Why continue chasing after these lovers? Why continue when God has opened a door with the blood of his son? There is free forgiveness. Come back. Come back, come back. To borrow the other word, return, return, return. Amen.